example of poetic inspiration, I thought, and that was very much, uh, I was very pleased to read your paper and very, very honored to, to be responding to it. Um, early on in your, in your paper, you mentioned the Phaedrus, in which Plato enumerates the four types of divine madness. The context is this. Socrates has just delivered a speech about the disadvantages of accepting the lover over the non-lover. Consider this, fair youth, he concludes, and know that in the friendship of the lover there is no real kindness. He has an appetite and wants to feed upon you. As wolves love lambs, so lovers love their loves. That's mm. a great example of alliteration. Uh, we can thank Plato's translator, in this case, Benjamin Jowett, for... Phaedrus uh, then asks Socrates to deliver a similar speech about accepting the non-lover over the lover. But Socrates insists that he has been overtaken by the nymphs and cannot carry on speech-making. As he makes to leave, his demonian, or inner voice, tells him that he has been guilty of impiety and must make atonement to love or eros, who is a god and therefore cannot, as Socrates has implied, be evil. To make atonement to Eros, Socrates delivers a second speech in praise of the lover this time. He begins by reproaching his first speech for overlooking that madness, as well as being an illness, can also be the source of man's greatest blessings. Madness, he says, provided it comes as the gift of heaven, is the channel by which we receive our greatest blessings. The men of old who gave things their names saw, saw no disgrace or reproach in madness. Otherwise, they would not have connected it with the name of the noblest of arts, the art of discerning the future, and called it the manic art. So, according to the evidence provided by our ancestors, madness is a nobler thing than sober sense. Madness comes from God, where sober sense is merely human. Socrates then explains that there are four types of divine madness, prophecy from Apollo, holy prayers and mystic rites from Dionysus, poetry from the Muses, and love from Aphrodite and Eros, which is the fourth and the highest form of madness. I do wish I could go on talking about the Phaedrus, but then I would be off topic, or at least I might seem to be. Um, Plato also was a mystic, and uh, therefore also a poet. In Aristotle's Poetics, which you quote, the sentence, poetry demands a man with a special gift for it, or else one with a touch of madness in him, is also translated as poetry is the work of a genius rather than a madman. This latter translation seems to be incompatible with Plato's account of poetic mania, until one realizes that for Plato, madness can be both an illness and the source of man's greatest blessings, uh, an idea which I explored in some depth in, in, depth in my recent book um, called The Meaning of Madness. However, it's important not to confuse madness, which may be either an illness or the source of man's greatest blessings, or indeed both at the same time, with that which we simply do not agree with, appreciate, or understand. For example, um, had you been mystically inclined, you might have had no trouble interpreting the verses of the so-called wise madman Sufi Sumnum. Mm -hmm. I am amazed by the overturning of a heart that I overturned and which turned into a heart, he who sees the overturning of a heart in his heart increases in love. Number 15. Yeah. This surely means, I think, that to, to make someone fall in love with you is a miracle. And to make someone fall in love with you leads him or her to be in love and in life like you are. 
and that in such cases love grows by feeding upon itself in a kind of ever-increasing and never-ending virtuous spiral. So, how might madness be the source of man's greatest blessings? Madness, or mental disorder, is difficult to define. Generally speaking, mental disorders are conditions that involve either loss of contact with reality or distress and impairment. These experiences lie on the continuum of normal human experience, and so it is impossible to define the point at which they become pathological. Furthermore, concepts such as schizophrenia, depression, and personality disorder listed in classifications of mental disorders may not in fact map onto any real or distinct disease entities. Even if they do, the symptoms and clinical manifestations that define them are open to being interpreted, most commonly by mere clinicians, or indeed mere academics. To address these problems, classifications of mental disorders adopt a menu of symptoms approach and rigidly define each symptom in meticulous scientific terms that are often far removed from the person's felt experience. This may encourage mental health experts to focus too closely on validating and treating an abstract diagnosis, and not enough on the person's distress, its context, and its significance or meaning. Despite using complex etiological models, mental health experts frequently neglect that the person's felt experience often has a meaning in and of itself, even if this meaning is broad, complex, or difficult to locate. By finding this meaning, the person may be able to recognize and address the source of his distress and so to make a quicker and more sustainable recovery. He may also gain important insights into himself and a more refined and nuanced perspective over life, which in itself could turn him into a poet or make him into a much better one. In terms of the origins of mental disorders, conditions such as anxiety disorders, depression, and personality disorders may have arisen from our need to cope with our environment and make sense of the human experience. For example, there seems to be an innate predisposition for developing certain specific phobias, such as phobias of spiders or snakes. Such innate predispositions are intended to protect us from the potential dangers commonly faced by our ancestors, and so to increase our chances of surviving and reproducing. The high level of background anxiety, sometimes referred to as neurosis, may arise from existential anxiety, and facing up to it may enable us to put our life into perspective, see it in its entirety, and thereby give it a sense of unity. In some cases, neurosis can also hold us, in the words of Carl Jung, with iron grip and force us to develop our potentialities. Depression may be triggered by a significant life event or an existential crisis, and so function as a signal to the self that something is seriously wrong and needs working through or changing. It may also enable a person to withdraw from the mindless frenzy of social living and create the solitude in which to gain perspective and understanding. So-called depressive realism may enable some people with depression to shed the Pollyannish optimism and rose-tinted spectacles that shield so many of us from reality, to see the world more accurately and to judge it accordingly. For these people, the concept of depression might be turned on its head and positively redefined as the healthy suspicion that life has no meaning and that modern society is not worth participating in. If depression and anxiety so often occur together, it may be because both have roots in our existential concerns, in this context, I was interested to discover in your paper that ham, or worry, is often conjoined with gam, or sorrow, but whereas the latter is about the past, ham is worrying about the future. Moving on, personality disorders may give us not only greater scope and opportunities for self-understanding, but also the drive and personality traits that predispose to success in certain fields. 
For example, people with histrionic personality disorder may be adept at charming and manipulating others, and thereby building and exercising business relationships. People with narcissistic personality disorder may be highly ambitious, confident, and self-focused, and able to exploit people in situations to their best advantage. And people with obsessive-compulsive or anancastic personality disorder may get quite far up the corporate and professional ladders simply by being overly devoted to work and productivity. While some mental disorders, such as anxiety disorders, depression, and personality disorders, which I've just talked about, may have arisen from our need to cope with being human and to make sense of the human experience, other mental disorders, such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, may have arisen from characteristics such as language and creativity that set us apart from other animals and define us as human beings. Schizophrenia may have arisen from the evolution of the human brain to accommodate a language center the dominant left brain hemisphere. This lateralization of function leads to an anatomical asymmetry in the brain, subtle deviations in which predispose to psychotic symptoms. Language is not necess necessary for communication, but it is able to give rise to symbolism and thereby to emotionalism and creative activity. These unique assets not only make us by far the most adaptable of all animals, but also enable us to engage in pursuits such as art, music, and religion, and so define us as human beings. Subtle deviations in the lateralization of function may lead to schizophrenia, but they may also lead to a greater capacity for creativity and spirituality, that is, to a greater capacity to make use of symbolic language. Unusually among mental or indeed physical disorders, bipolar disorder is more common in higher socioeconomic groups, suggesting that the genes that predispose to bipolar disorder also predispose to greater achievement and success in the relatives of people with bipolar disorder and sometimes also in people with bipolar disorder themselves. Whilst the genes responsible for bipolar disorder may lead to adaptive advantages at the individual level, they may also lead to adaptive advantages at the level of the population group. Compared to neighboring population groups, population groups with a high proportion of creative individuals are likely to be more artistically and culturally developed, uh, lending them a stronger sense of identity and purpose and tighter social cohesion. They are also likely to be more scientifically and technologically advanced and so more economically and militarily successful. Despite all this, it is important that mental disorders are not romanticized, sought out, or left untreated, simply because they may or may not predispose to creativity, problem-solving, or personal development. The most severe forms of mental disorder have a strong biological basis and are not simply in the mind. All mental disorders are drab and intensely painful, and most people who suffer from one would never wish it on anyone, least of all themselves. In many cases, mental disorders can lead to serious harm, or even to death through accident, self-neglect, or self-harm. Even highly successful people with a mental disorder, such as Sylvia Plath or Virginia Woolf, committed suicide in the end, and more than 90% of people who commit suicide are deemed to suffer from a mental disorder. R rather than being overly romanticized or overly medicalized, mental disorders should be seen for nothing more and nothing less than what they are, an expression of our deepest human nature. By recognizing their traits in ourselves and reflecting upon them, we may be able both to contain them and to make the most out of them. This is no doubt the highest form of genius. Shall just finish off with a quotation from the French novelist André Gide. Les choses les plus belles sont celles que souffle la folie et qu'écrit la raison. Il faut demeurer entre les deux, tout près de la folie quand on rêve, tout près de la raison quand on écrit. The most beautiful things are those which are whispered by madness written down by reason. 
We must steer a course between the two, close to madness in our dreams, but close to reason in our writing. Thank you. Okay, so I'm not remotely qualified to um, say anything about Arabic literary history, um, but what I will do is um, just use uh, Kurt's paper as a springboard for some reflections about, I suppose, the stigma of madness and, in fact, the stigma of psychiatry in a very, in a very recent and contemporary period in relation to my research. So two terms early on in this intriguing and delightful paper struck me, lunatic and lover. These words of Shakespeare's could frame the subject of my research, which is the changing Anglo-American understanding of female sexual dysfunction in a period far removed from Hertz poets and perhaps uncomfortably close to us, the 1960s to the present. Lovers are in fact not prominent figures in the material that I look at. The salient targets of concern are the dysfunctional individual, the dysfunctional couple, often the dysfunctional married couple, and the dysfunctional body. Nor, of course, is lunacy a term in the landscape I cover, though sexual problems are categorised within the American Psychiatric Association's DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. The problems with desire, arousal, orgasm and pain that are listed in the manual are therefore technically mental disorders, although much medical, pharmaceutical and public discourse in the last 50 years about sexual problems has striven to emphasise their nature as eminently physical conditions, a project intimately tied up with efforts to settle yet again the question of psychiatry's relationship to medicine. Female sexuality has been seen as a kind of lunacy for much of the late 19th and 20th centuries, or rather the effect of a sort of lunacy. Hysteria, frigidity, nymphomania, hypersexuality, these diagnoses applied to women whose sexuality compromised their biological and social natures and duties. Excessive lust, reluctance in the face of enthusiastic husbands, lesbianism, a reliance on clitoral as opposed to vaginal orgasms, were all variously delineated as symptoms of psychiatric conditions, and both the cause and reflection of a faulty adjustment to the requirements of femininity. The motive for these dysfunctional behaviours and symptoms was in some measure the dysfunctional mind, with its ambitions for independence, careers, equal sexual entitlement, and so on. The more recent landscape has been marked by several important changes. In the 1960s, a trenchant scientific and philosophical critique emerged of the psychoanalytic psychiatry that dominated in the US by mid-century and which suffused understandings of female sexuality. Behaviorism was significantly, significantly represented in this critique, and Masters and Johnson epitomized a shift in the language of sexual problems. They were not the first to approach sexual problems with a form of behavioral conditioning, but they were the most prominent. And in their white-coated efforts to make sex therapy scientific, they made it increasingly respectable as well as highly culturally visible. 
their delineation of the human sexual response and their new classifications of sexual problems were significantly to influence later psychiatric classification. The vehement critique of psychoanalytic psychiatry from the 60s onwards dovetailed with a growing feminist critique of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Critics saw medical and sexological pronouncements on female sexuality as inherently phallocentric, constraining women within masculinist criteria for sexual pleasure, privileging an idealised vaginal orgasm, and construing women as inherently masochistic. This critique formed part of a more general suspicion within second-wave feminism, and in the period more widely, of medical expertise, authority, and professional expansion. And much scholarship in the emerging field of history of medicine and psychiatry was sustained by a, criti by a critique of medical discourse as an expression of hostility and anxiety towards women's bodies and their autonomous desires, be those for clitoral orgasms, careers, or fellow women. The growing critique of psychoanalysis, of psychoanalytic psychiatry, took decisive form in the 1980 publication of the DSM III, a document that's widely, if perhaps exaggeratedly, seen as sounding a death knell for psychodynamic psychiatry, and either heralded or decried as a sort of manifesto for a newly biological psychiatry. DSM-3 was the first DSM explicitly to categorise problems of sexual function. In the last 10 years, there's been a significant growth of medical and public discourse about FSD, which is the, which is the umbrella term for the various diagnoses. Energised in part by the licensing of Viagra for erectile dysfunction and by concerted, if rather unsuccessful, attempts to produce a similar compound for women. A heated debate has also picked up pace in the last 10 years about the psychiatric and pharmaceutical medicalization of sex. Dominated by feminist sociologists and psychologists, an activist and scholarly campaign against <coughs> FSD argues that sexual problems are understood in overly reductionistic and biological terms, as malfunctions of vascular, hormonal, or, cere or cerebral systems to be fixed by pharmacological intervention. But, goes the critique, female sexual problems especially are highly contextual, the result of a confluence of personal, social, cultural, and political factors. Lack of communication between partners, exhaustion due to inequalities in child-rearing and housework, anxieties about body image, violence, real or threatened from sexual partners, misunderstandings of female desire and anatomy. All these, critics argue, are crucial in triggering and sustaining sexual problems. I happen to disagree with this rather stark assessment of FSD discourse as overwhelmingly reductionistic. If one looks at a wide range of sources, not just medico-pharmaceutical discourse, but broadsheet and tabloid media, self-help books, health information websites, women's magazines, the ontology and etiology of sexual problems comes out as much more complex. These different texts speak in a psychological register as well as a physiological one. Fantasy and imagination are key to helping yourself with your sexual problems. Behavioural and cognitive habits are on a par with hormones, feathers, pornography and sex toys, all key to enhancing pleasure and overcoming sexual problems. However, one thing is clear. These are all sites for technological action. 
But the question of what FSD is and what it is caused by remains opaque and unarticulated in much of the literature. Actually, to be more precise, etiology is addressed, but usually in order to distance certain, certain kinds of etiologies. So while a great many things may be relevant to sexual problems, some are definitely more equal than others. In other words, there's a discernible ontological hierarchy at work, and etiologies that can be construed as psychosomatic, psychological, or psychiatric are insistently invoked in order to be pushed away as morally and scientifically problematic. An example of this emerges from responses to a British Medical Journal article written in 2003 by Ray Moynihan that described the making of FSD. He wrote, A cohort of researchers are working with colleagues in the pharmaceutical industry to develop and define a new category of human illness at meetings heavily sponsored by companies racing to develop new drugs. Complex social and personal causes of sexual difficulties and the range of solutions to them will be swept away in the rush to diagnose, label and prescribe. This article provoked outraged responses. A nurse therapist wrote in the BMJ that FSD is not a new pharmaceutically manufactured condition. A private consultant wrote that the article trivialises the real suffering experienced by millions of women and risks encouraging doctors to offer counselling rather than real medical treatment. Sexual dysfunction is not, a patient wrote, a fabrication of women's imagination or a figment of corporate America's financial imagination. Nor, wrote another, should women be effectively silenced by the constant response that their problems are psychological, <coughs> i.e. that they're imagining it. And similar associations were repeated throughout various media internationally. Here, claims about what, about what influences diagnostic categories and about what is causally relevant to symptoms are repeatedly interpreted as claims about the reality of symptoms, as claims that patients are inventing their distress. Prominent sexologists write that they are shocked to hear how many doctors see sexual problems as emotional, relational, or due to fatigue from childbearing. This, this is what women have been hearing for decades, they lament. But the problem is not just in your head, they write. You are not crazy. We are beginning to recognize female sexual dysfunction as a medical problem. We're seeing here the slippery power of terms with deep ontological and moral reverberations. Describing a condition as psychological is interpreted as meaning that it is not physical. And what is not physical is thought to be not real. So saying that something is psychological is equated with saying it is not real or it is fake. Historian Rodri Hayward has argued that concepts of psychosomatic causation are now thoroughly diffused throughout our ideas of selfhood, identity and disease. This is partly true, but it's also true that psychogenic etiologies are experienced with significant hostility and anxiety. Psychosomatic illness in popular usage connotes deception, if not of others, then at least of oneself. And questions of willful, mot willful motivation and individual culpability become all the more morally laden given the demise of concepts of unconscious motivation. The current feminist critique of sexual problems in the DSM is also reluctant to talk psychologically about sexual problems. Leonor Tifa, 
prime mover behind the critical scholarship and activism on FSD, is unhappy with the language of interiority, of depth, of uncovering causes. This archaeological language is, of course, much associated with psychoanalysis. And as a way of thinking about ourselves and about identity itself, the idea of an occult interior life, which we can uncover with various technologies, is a historically specific contingency. But so too is the suspicion of depth psychology that permeates both contemporary medical discourse about FSD and the feminist critique of psychiatric classification. And this shared suspicion makes possible the heroic feminist rhetoric of pharmaceutical companies developing drugs and the offended rhetoric of patients. It is the fault line that runs throughout contemporary debate about sexual problems, giving it its acrimonious, polemical energy. In Hertz's exploration of the mercurial meanings of... How do I pronounce that? Mueswis? He states that the old dictionary's gloss... As obscure sound, for example, the rustling of the wind, the tinkling of jewellery, or the whispering of a hunter. It also means the soul's talk, he writes, which one could interpret as in a voice, especially if this voice intimates dubious things. The madman hears voices seemingly coming from somewhere else, but lexicographers cannot make up their minds whether the inner voice or whispering represents the self or not. The distrust of psychogenic etiologies and the stigma of the possible madness of symptoms means that we're reluctant to interpret sexual symptoms as speaking of selves or of circumstances. Sexual problems are no longer lunacy. We prefer to see them as malfunctions of a body or even a brain which communicate no meaning but can be technically managed. The post-war problematization of psychodynamic psychiatry has made it highly controversial to speak of possible psychological, emotional, or contextual causes of sexual problems. And this historical contingency of discourse has some very particularly concrete effects. Pharmaceutical solutions are rashly embraced, not simply because of big pharma's pursuit of profit, but because of the cultural associations that make pharmaceutical compounds so appealing. We interpret the success of drugs as etiologically informative, as telling us that the cause of a symptom is the same as the unit on which a compound acts. So if a drug for low libido acts on testosterone, a lack of testosterone is seen as the cause of low libido. Pharmaceutical solutions are so compelling because they offer us the possibility of absolving, absolving ourselves from positioning the self in the symptoms. Does the inner voice represent the self or not? If so, which part of the self? No matter. Thinking etiologically through drugs gives us license to avoid thinking about what sexual problems might be voicing, what the rustling wind may intimate, and what the hunter might be whispering. Way of, of telling or guessing whether the, this the 
the unusual phraseology is seriously meant, or whether they're making jokes or writing nonsense poems or trying to imitate madmen in their poems. Is there any way of distinguishing? It's difficult, difficult to tell. Um, there are certain instances where of, of, of poets intentionally making nonsense. In fact, I, as I said, I, I wrote a paper on nonsense verbs in Arabic. Mm, I yes, you can't really be sure whether, in, in most cases, it, it's consciously made into nonsense. In some cases, uh, it could be just uh, mad, madness, but I think it, that must be a bit minority. It's very difficult to tell. I, I, I was wondering whether sort of there are any psychiatric kind of tests on what might be a joke or... Not on Arabi, the great mystic does not make jokes. I think he's not a jokey sort of person. But, but that, uh, that's a sort of circular point, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean uh, how do you know somebody's the great mystic? Even if yeah, but, uh, once you admit that he was making jokes that would undermine rather a lot of things, I think, especially uh, uh, the numerous... They could be very serious jokes. I mean, they, they might be the jokes with a very profound yeah. oh, spiritual yes. intent. I, I completely agree. It's I mean, just want to put your question out here. I guess the only thing I would use to judge would be the context in which they're published or appeared. Yes. Unless you know that. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would guess be the judge. I mean, obviously, you know, <coughs> Finnegan's Wake is a classic example. It's a transcript from an interview. It's like Kosha said, it's in a book. It's... it's yeah. Um, work of great genius. Oh, so, I think at that stage of Joyce's <laughs> career, it's a really close-run thing. Isn't it's it? not, is it? I mean, well, no, just... frankly, I think it is a close-run thing. So it's not, he wasn't diagnosed with mental illness or treated with mental illness? Or... But that doesn't answer the question, <laughs> does it? It does, surely. Did he put himself up for diagnosis or treatment for mental illness? But no, you can say that the fact that it was a successful outcome of his, of his experiences kind of implies <laughs> it wasn't mental illness. I'd suggest. I think both could be true. Anyway, it's very strange nature of illness, though, isn't it? It's successful. Like how it works in about Plato, I guess. Sound. A non disordered form of illness. You are being bored, I guess, sounds a bit strange to me. I'm, well, we're, we're, aren't we here to discuss whether there could be successful outcomes from certain forms of mental disorder? And Finnegan's weight might be one of them. Well, I said that the same with these poets, if, if they were maybe, I don't know, getting patronage or working in a society where their work was lauded, I'm not sure this was the case, and I would say move against them, you know, I think it was madness in a clinical sense. Madness in an artistic sense would be maybe a useful device. Could I just come in on this? Just that um, the, uh, the PSM actually has these criteria of clinical significance, which really are about whether the outcome of what goes is going on is successful or unsuccessful in social and occupation terms. So I believe that criterion B for schizophrenia. And so uh, these criteria weren't introduced to distinguish between madness and non-madness. They were introduced to distinguish levels of madness really as a way of discriminating who should have treatment and who shouldn't. But they actually do the job of discriminating between madness and non-madness. And I, 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 I mean, just, just find that through, that that in um, actually a case study, I think you heard me use at Warwick the other day, mm -hmm. um, where somebody presents with the formal symptoms of schizophrenia, but actually has, and, and although he's the experience is entirely idiosyncratic, the outcome of it is that he gains from these experiences a way of, he's a lawyer, and he gains from these experiences a way of winning a court case, which was taken against himself, and he goes on to become a very successful lawyer and to make a lot of money. 
So the question is, is that a benign form of schizophrenia, or is it actually something quite different in a mm. creative mm. process? And the British Psychological Society now has taken that, and this wasn't my work, this was Mike Jackson actually here, and indeed Phil here with Gordon Carrick. The British Psychological Society now have a, a sort of view about psychosis, what we're calling madness here, that actually it is a, a creative faculty that, hence the link with poetry, so it's a creative faculty that everybody has to a greater or lesser extent, like any other faculty, and like any other faculty, it can go really badly wrong sometimes, and when it goes really badly wrong, that's illness. But we shouldn't think of madness, psychosis, as illness per se. It's what you do with it, where you go with it, if you like, that makes it illness. One, one thing that makes it say as well is that you know, it's, it's a continuum, so you can be healed at one point, and then you can learn from that illness, or it can inspire you when you're well later on to then create something. And sometimes it can be both good and bad at the same time. So Hemingway, you know, one of the greatest writers ever, shot himself in the brain. You know, so, so it's not one or the other. Can be both at the same time, and that's quite difficult to actually for many people who seem to want to grasp. Oh, well, um, ju just very briefly, one um, poet, surely, and you can trace mental disintegration is Ivor Gurney. You might have some analogies with the Arabic author, but he's also a composer. And you can, I think, see his last poems when he's in, in an asylum. Actually, sure. My uh, follow quick follow up question whether any of our clinicians have had patients who have written poetry, was it any good? <laughs> <laughs> I think we've all had patients who, particularly in manic phases, uh, write volumes of poetry. Probably, yeah. And uh, actually, it's not much good. No. Um, but those are also people who, when they're not quite so manic, would be creative and would probably write rather well and so on. So I, I think Neil's point is a good one also, that just as uh, at any one time, if you like, we could be thinking about is this functional or dysfunctional, uh, and there's some support for that, uh, I think it, I think it was sort of accidental support in the DSM. Um, similarly, maybe that over a period of time, different phases of illness actually have a productive science to them, and that, you know, So the, the poetry would, so I may just follow up very quickly, the poetry reflects the the underlying mental state, which we discussed earlier, or we considered yes. earlier briefly, the possibility that writing poetry might itself be a form of therapy. Mm -hmm. Well, that's also mm -hmm. true, yes. They know that, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, uh, Professor Jonah, I wouldn't pretend to know more about my mother tongue than you do, <laughs> but uh, um, I know that a lot of poets, especially in, in the period when the sort of Arabic literature was going down, that most of them turned out to prose or, or poetry <coughs> was dependent very much on playing with words rather than high flow and the language and, and being. The other point is about Waswasa and this was, uh, I know that uh, it has been adopted by modern Arabs currently as obsession or obsession university. That's interesting. Yeah. And you speak about a period of decline. Uh, that's I think uh, this is quite a revisionist school now, uh, which denies that there was a period of decline that we should. That's not what we're talking about. It's true that they liked playing with words, and whether it's an obsession, I think poetry is often an obsession. And, but I think I think one should. 
Japanese poetry, which dates from, say, uh, centuries, say, the, from the Mongol invasions or so from the 13th century till the, the so-called uh, Nahada or uh, Renaissance of yeah. Arabic literature in the, in the second half of the 19th century, that is called the, the Age of Decadence. Well, it's a bit long for decadence, I think, uh, from, <laughs> to, to range. I think it's, it's impossible that it would have survived for so long if it wasn't good by its own standards. And I think it's good that scholars, I'm one of the followers now, not the leaders, uh, modern Arabists, Arabic studies, are trying to overturn this idea. Of course, quite understandable when poets and writers in the 20th century adopted Western standards. They wanted to something to react against. And of course, then they, they, they vilified their own uh, past or uh, several centuries. But anyhow, this has not to do with the topic. But I, it's interesting to hear that that obsession is now called Wes Wesser, and uh, yes, uh, that's a poetic obsession with whatever poetic techniques such as, as playing with words. It could be Wes Wesser, it's very interesting. Okay. See, other than Arabic language, I think, uh, because I know, of course, Mother Tingle's whole book, have language extraordinarily rich in uh, mental health and, of course, madness issues to the point that reading a poetic uh, quarter, you can almost make out the phenomenology and psychopathology of the person. I find Arabic, I know a little bit of it, uh, rather more grammatical and more <coughs> fair. But the riddles in Urdu poetry and Persian, which is, of course, Urdu is a derivative of Persian, Arabic, Turkish, and Hindi put together. Mm -hmm. I feel it's the richest language when it comes to conveying sense of uh, sadness to madness to one poet, Ghaleb, said, I, I want to remain in a state of you know, drunkardness and oblivion because that gives me an insight into the real human condition. So they really dawned on themselves, uh, imposed on themselves madness to explore humanity. And again, following your point, what is mental illness? You know, Pope says everything is mental illness to uh, Erwin Goffman saying there's no mental illness. So this, this debate is on and raging. And of course, your point was a little very Langian in that, you know, as to where do you, where do you draw the line? In a, a debate on other form of poetries and philosopher and psychiatrist sitting together is very fascinating to see what insight this poetry gives us about the state of mind. A very creative people, one go after Algar, who was a patient in the hospital, about called Mustaf. So creativity and madness go together. And again, the word madness needs to be clarified. No, I, it's only a, a small question concerning terminology. Um, well, as you know, um, melancholy on the, in medical text is translated most of the time by uh, West West Saudawi. And I was wondering if you thought that maybe it could come from the poetry. Why did uh, the physician chose West West to translate? Quran, no doubt. Because Quran, the Quran yeah. mentions West West as the whisperings of the soul mm. from Satan and the satanic connotations may have been lost to some extent, but I think it fitted rather well with his delusions, because delusion is the basic meaning, I think, of West Western later on. So I think that's why, and perhaps it, the Junoon also was perhaps not, well, less popular, because Junoon is, is as you say, etymologically uh, related to the jinn, and perhaps the, the medics wanted to get rid of this popular, well, I shouldn't say popular superstition, because 
we didn't have mentioned in the Quran, so they are real to Muslims. But I think the med medical specialists probably wanted to get away from that to some extent. Although Majnun is still the common word for mad. I mean, Magnoon in Egypt means mad. It doesn't, does not mean possessed by jinn, of course. Yeah. Just a curiosity, when do you think the notion of waswas as a delusion comes in? I know Michael Dole uses it in his yeah. translation. But are we justified in such a translation? I mean, I can't really see in any of the, um, of the material I can think of that, we're act that we are actually justified in translating it. Is yeah, perhaps. Perhaps delusion is also in the, in the rather weak sense of making, of worrying about things that are, you should worry, should not worry about. That's also kind of delusion. Is, is that delusion, or in the sense of modern? Not, not, not through mm. the technical term, but no, I agree. Mm -hmm. There's another term used for delusion uh, by classical authors of a rule. That being deceived, yeah, being deceived, yes, not a rule. It's not as common. Yeah. That's not used for for mad forms of madness. Yeah. Ian, did you want to say something? Yeah, I, I was encouraged by the things that Catherine had to say to try and make a um, a general question, which I'm struggling with a bit. Um, a lot of the discussion up to now has been about um, what something is, whether it be love or uh, illness, mental mental illness. And I would like to know the extent to which um, the way that one labels something actually depends on an assumed etiology, but also the extent which it has implications for treatment. And you referred to female sexual dysfunction as being uh, potentially a big bonanza for the disease mongers, as they're called. Um, who actually invent diseases. There's a wonderful one. My favorite one is repeatomania. I don't know if all of you know that. It's the um, uh, insatiable desire of a slave to escape. Um, uh, um, but what I have in mind is that um, these things can get extremely animated. Uh, ME, post-viral syndrome, is a, quite a good example, where uh, people actually hate the idea of something other than a drug being available to them to help, in spite of the fact there is evidence that people with those symptoms can be helped, regardless of whether you make an assumption as a result of those observations that they are being helped because it is a mentally generated um, set of symptoms. Um, but there are other things too. Um, I was in Gaza earlier this month, and I was involved with a series of papers about in the Lancet about um, health and health services in the occupied Palestinian territory, um, published about a year ago. And one of the things that people feel very angry about is the individualist approach to misery, which might be called depression, post-traumatic stress. The idea that instead of actually diagnosing the etiology as the occupation and everything goes goes with it, but somehow located in an individual who needs counseling to one sort or the other. So I'd be interested to hear a bit more, because there hasn't been a lot of talk about interventions. One of them has been psychotherapy, another has been marriage. Um, um, there hasn't been a lot about interventions and what the implications are for then looking back to a label and back further 
to an applied uh, etiology. Sorry, it's a bit incoherent, but uh, um, it was your presentation that emboldened me to try and raise the issue. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I can just say something quickly about that, I think, I think there's a really interesting question there about how, which I'll sort of leave you towards the end, about how we sort of end up mingling our reasoning about ontology with our reasoning about etiology. And I think that's a mistake. <laughs> um, because I think we're always tempted to reason backwards from available treatments, but partly for the reasons I want to provocatively suggest that it, it fulfills certain psychological functions actually to fixate on, on you know, simple causal narratives and on particular pharmacological fixes. And I think the, the real way to start thinking in the more interesting ways that you suggest is precisely to try and detach questions of ontology from etiology because you, you get information about what a condition is from treatment, but you don't get all the information. And I think that's a kind of important starting point. I think I'm desperate for coffee. <laughs> We've raised some interesting, really, uh, interesting issues here that I think we might want to talk about in a general discussion and, and in the future. So uh, with my apologies, I think uh, let us break for